Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Tonight we'll be getting to know the senator and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidate some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Bernie Sanders was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1941. He went to James Madison High School and earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago in 1964. He moved to Vermont after graduation and in 1981 was elected mayor of Burlington for the first of four terms. Sanders lectured at Harvard as well as Hamilton College in New York and ran unsuccessful bids as an independent candidate for Vermont governor, U.S. Senate and Congress before being elected as an independent to Vermont's only congressional seat in 1990, a position he held until taking office as a U.S. Senator in 2007. Voters have re-elected him twice. As chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, Sanders helped pass VA health care system reform in 2014. He sat on several other committees, including Environment and Public Works, focusing on global warming and infrastructure, and Energy and Natural Resources, where he has worked to move the U.S. away from fossil fuels. Sanders ran for president in 2016 and won the New Hampshire primary in a landslide over the eventual Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton. Sanders is married, has four children, and seven grandchildren. Senator Sanders, thank you for joining us on Conversation with, with the you. Candidate. We appreciate your time. So as noted there, you won the New Hampshire primary in 2016 in uh, unprecedented fashion, really, in a massive landslide. And you've said yourself, this is essentially where you were able to prove that your ideas could not only win, but win big with Democratic voters. So here, four years later now, what are you doing to expand your base of support in New Hampshire beyond that core of progressives that you get? Well, it's not just the core progressives when you win the state by a 20-point margin, it's, it's a lot of people. And I think, Adam, what New Hampshire showed, and I want to thank the people of New Hampshire for the support they gave me four years ago. And we're going to be working really hard because we're not taking anything for granted in this state. We did three events yesterday. We're going to do three events today. We're working hard in this state. But what New Hampshire showed is that the ideas that we brought forth, that health care is a human right, that we have to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, that we need equal pay for equal work, for women, that we have to address the existential threat of climate change, that we have to deal with criminal justice and immigration reform, they have to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and create millions of good paying jobs. Now when I brought forth those kind of ambitious goals, the political establishment and the media establishment were saying those were extreme and radical ideas. Well, it turns out that here in New Hampshire and in Iowa as well, people said no, that is what we need to rebuild the crumbling middle class that we cannot continue the level <clears throat> of income and wealth inequality, that you need an economy that works for all of us, not just the 1%. So that was, I think, the message that came out of New Hampshire. And yet there are some Democrats in this election cycle, it's clear that they're looking for, quote unquote, the safe bet. Uh, so what would you say to those Democrats who say, gosh, Senator Sanders, we like you, we like your policies, but we feel it's just too much of a risk potentially against Donald uh, Trump? That's a very fair question. And I'll, I'll tell you, my wife and I thought long and hard about whether we wanted to get into this race, because you <laughs> certainly appreciate here in New Hampshire how difficult it is and the kind of attacks that come, ugly attacks that come on families and so forth. But we concluded uh, that I should run for two reasons. 
uh, number one, I believe, and I think many do, that I am the strongest candidate to defeat, in my view, the most dangerous president in the modern history uh, of this country. Trump has got to be defeated. I think I'm the strongest candidate, and I'll tell you why. To defeat Trump, you're going to need a large voter turnout. You're going to have to reach out to young people, to working people in an unprecedented way. And I think our campaign has and is generating that kind of excitement. Uh, second of all, uh, in states like New Hampshire or states like uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Indiana, there are issues that I fought for uh, that resonate very strongly with the people there. Uh, I was one of the leaders in opposition to these terrible trade agreements, NAFTA, permanent normal trade relations with China, which have cost us millions of decent paying jobs. And I think if you look at my record, it's a record that I have stood up for working people throughout my entire political life. And I've had the courage to say, you know what, we have to take on the greed of corporate America and create an economy that works for all of us. So I think my message will resonate in those states that Trump won. And I think that makes me, uh, in fact, the strongest candidate. And we're in the middle of a much more competitive race uh, yes. than 2016. In particular, you have a candidate like Elizabeth Warren, who is almost in complete overlap with you on policy. Do you feel like you need to work harder here to match her plans and the intellectual firepower she's bringing to this race? Well, I'm proud to say that many of the ideas that we introduced four years ago are now the ideas that many, many candidates are talking about. When I was here on MUR four years ago and I talked about Medicare for All, who was talking about it? Nobody. Who's talking about it now? A whole lot of people. Raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. A lot of people are talking about it. So I'm proud that many of the ideas that I introduced four years ago are now being talked about by a whole lot of people. Clearly, this race is different. Four years ago, I was running against one candidate, Secretary Clinton. Now we're running against, what's the latest count, 22. It makes it a very, very different race. Uh, but I think we're going to win here in New Hampshire, and I think we're going to win the primary because we have a very strong coalition of working people, of young people, of uh, black activists and Latino activists, uh, people all across the board who are prepared to stand up uh, and fight with us to help not only win the election, but to transform this country. Do you believe the president should be impeached? And if so, on what grounds? Well, I think this president is a disaster. I really do. And I think he is an embarrassment. And every single day you see, you know, another outrage. Uh, the idea that he has no understanding of the Constitution of the United States, the separation of powers, uh, he disrespects the Congress in a very significant way, as et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, and, and I think what the House is now doing is looking uh, to determine whether, in fact, he has obstructed justice, which is an impeachable offense. So what I think is that the Judiciary Committee in the House should go forward with an inquiry, an inquiry into impeachment. We'll see where that goes. But I think we have to do two things. I think we cannot get away with the outrageous behavior, an illegal behavior, an unconstitutional behavior of Trump. But we can't just deal with that. Because the people who are watching this program are saying, Bernie, what are you going to do with the fact that I can't afford health care? I can't afford to send my kid to college, that I'm worried about climate change. So if all we do is worry about Trump, we fall into his trap. But you have to deal with that. But on the other hand, you have to deal with the reality that half of the American people are living paycheck to paycheck, that we have so many kids out there who are struggling to get their feet on the ground economically. We can't forget those people as well. Senator Sanders, thanks for answering the easy questions out here. The New Hampshire voters and the tougher questions await. Coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. 
life's beautiful moments. Sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our conversation this evening with Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. We're going to jump right into things with our New Hampshire voters, this town hall audience that has their questions on domestic and foreign policy. And we're going to start with Laura Landerman Carver. Thank you. Welcome, Senator Sanders. Nice to meet you. Uh, welcome to New Hampshire. I am a clinical psychologist here in New Hampshire and I've worked with teens and children for decades. I've never seen the staggering numbers of anxieties that they're coming in with, especially about their safety. They're afraid to go to school. They're afraid to go to their synagogues, their churches, their mosques. Recently, a teen told me she was afraid to go to the mall, a place where all teenagers like to hang out in uh, safer times. One teen recently told me that for every five steps she takes forward, half of those steps she's looking behind her, fearful that someone will randomly hurt her and harm her and her friends or her fam and or her family. What message do you have for our frightened youth? And maybe even more importantly, what are your plans to help our families stay safe? Well, I would echo exactly what you said. That is what I heard all over this country. Kids, and it's hard to believe, you have to take a step backwards. School has always been a place where you feel safe, you hang out with your friends, you learn. And the idea that kids all over this country, in New Hampshire, Vermont, and all over this country, are frightened about going to school. What a horrible, horrible situation that is. I think what we can say uh, is, for a start, uh, that we have got to do everything that we can to end the kind of incredible gun violence that we're seeing in this country. And I'm not gonna tell anybody that this is an easy situation. You got hundreds of millions of people running around this country, uh, people who have hundreds of millions of guns in this country, and you got a lot of people who perhaps should not be owning those guns. So what we need to do for a start uh, is move toward serious uh, gun safety legislation. That's number one, and there's a number of provisions I can talk to you. But second of all, you know what we have to do? You're a psychologist. And that means we have to understand. Let me tell you a personal story. In my office, and I think in every Senate office, we get calls from people. Got a call from a sister. She said, I'm really worried about my brother who may do something terrible to himself or to somebody else, and he cannot find the kind of counseling that he needs that he can afford. This is true all over this country. We have a mental health crisis in America. People cannot get the help they need when they need it at a cost that they can afford which is, by the way, why I believe in a Medicare for All program which treats mental health issues the same as it treats any other type of illness. So I think we need to move aggressively in gun safety. I think we need to move aggressively in making sure that people get the counseling that they need. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Quick follow on that, Senator. Uh, your state, Vermont, has a lot of guns, but it's also safe. Why is that? Well, it's, it's safe because people in Vermont use guns primarily uh, for hunting and for target practice. Uh, and thank God, I don't want to jinx anything, but thank God we don't have the kind of gang violence uh, that many other states currently have. But the issue here, I think, is right now there is overwhelming support in this country for common sense gun safety legislation. It means that you have to eliminate uh, the gun show loophole. It means to say that we have to expand the background checks. It means, in my view, 
that you have to do away with the sale and distribution of assault weapons. Those weapons are designed for military reasons to kill large numbers of people. I don't think they should be in the hands of civilians, to be frank with you. But the psychologist's question is exactly right. There are a whole lot of people in this country who are walking around uh, with serious problems, and they cannot get the treatment they need, and we have to expand that as well. Next question comes from Joan Wentworth. Good evening, Senator. What are your thoughts on the types of circumstances where the president should or should not issue an executive order? And as president, would you support setting limits on their use? The answer is yes. Look, let me be, you, you, you um, introduced the magic word, the president. All right, so let me just say, I think that Trump is the most dangerous president in the history of this country. I think we should begin impeachment inquiries through the Judiciary Committee. I think he has very little understanding uh, or respect for the Constitution of the United States and the separation of powers. And I think he has overutilized the executive orders. Now, executive orders is a prerogative of the president. But we have a legislative process by which the House and the Senate pass bills they're supposed to be signed by the president. And I worry very much, to be honest with you, that we have a president who is moving this country into an authoritarian direction in a number of areas, not just through the uh, overuse of executive orders. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Next question comes from Christine Edney. Thank you, Senator Sanders. My question is regarding the Electoral College. Where do you stand on the Electoral College? And if you're in favor of eliminating it, how do you feel a small state like New Hampshire would get a fair say in any future election? Well, here's the bottom line. It's something that I think should be explored, okay, in, in this sense. It is hard. You know, we believe in democracy, and we believe that a majority rules. Well, it turns out that Donald Trump got three million votes fewer than Secretary Clinton did, but he is President of the United States. Is that fair? Hard to argue that that's fair. It is hard also to argue in uh, modern-day politics that really the election uh, revolves around 14 or 15 states in this country, including the so-called battleground states. So if you live in California, which is a strongly Democratic state, or you live in Wyoming, which is a strongly Republican state, who's going to come and visit you? Who cares about it? Wyoming's going to go Republican, California's going to go Democrat. Is that a good idea as well? So it's an issue that we have to deal with. I think a president, and I'll tell you one of the repercussions of that, is that rural America, Vermont, New Hampshire, many rural states are hurting right now. We're seeing depopulation of rural counties. We're seeing hospitals being closed down. Not enough attention is being paid to rural America. So I'm not sure that we need, that we don't need candidates going out to rural America more than they have. But bottom line is, when we have had, in the case of Bush and Trump, candidates winning, uh, becoming president of the United States with by, and not winning the popular vote, it is something I think you've got to think about. Thank you. Next question comes from social media. Judd Miller asks, uh, why does the senator believe that anyone that is in prison for violating the laws of the land should still enjoy the privilege to cast votes in elections? Because it's not a privilege. It's not a privilege. It's a right. And what I worry about right now is that you have Republican governors all over this country, including the Republican governor here, who is trying to suppress the vote. Now, I believe that in a democracy, we have to encourage people to vote. I want more people to vote, not fewer people to vote. So I believe it's not a question whether you're a nice person or a smart person or a good person. Are you an American citizen? If you're an American citizen, you have the right to vote. And what we are seeing now is cowardly Republican governors all over this country 
working hard to make sure that people of color who might vote against them don't vote. Young people don't vote. Poor people don't vote. And we end up having one of the lower voter turnout rates of any major country on earth. So I happen to believe that the criteria for voting is not whether you're good or bad, but whether you are 18 years of age and an American citizen. And then you cast your vote for all people. Next question comes from Terrence Ganarian. Thank you for joining us, Senator. As a legal, legal immigrant who is now probably a U.S. citizen, I understand it coming to the United States and being part of the American dream. Well, that being well said, I understand the, legal, the issues of illegal immigration and the challenges that those who are here illegally face. If you were president, how would you uh, support that population? Okay. Well, let me mention that my, I'm the son of an immigrant. My father came to this country without a nickel in his pocket, never made much money, uh, but he came from Poland uh, at the age of 17 uh, and became the proudest American that you ever saw because this country enabled him to raise two kids, and at least a, with a working class standard of living. So I know a little bit about the experience of immigrants. And I am disgusted, to tell you the truth, by the demonization uh, that President Trump uh, is the kind of demonization of undocumented people that he is now working on every single day. I mean, that's what demagogues do. You pick on a minority group and you demonize them. I happen to believe that we have got to move toward comprehensive uh, immigration reform and a path toward citizenship. I believe that we should immediately uh, provide legal status to the 1.8 million young people uh, who are in the DACA, eligible for the DACA program. And I also believe that we have got to treat in a humane way people seeking asylum at the southern border and that America should not be about snatching babies uh, from the arms of their mothers. So comprehensive immigration reform, a path toward citizenship. Thank you. Quick follow on that, Senator Sanders. So what do you propose to do with the families that do come to the border? We had a variation of the family separation under President Obama. What would be, well, what would among be like other things, you need a hell of a lot more judges to begin dealing whether or not people are eligible for asylum. And we're not doing that. We should be doing that. Next question comes from Benjamin Pelletier. Hello, Senator Sanders. I have always been told to go to college and get a degree because that will help you later on in life. However, the cost of college and high amounts of student loans are staggering. What is your plan for lowering college tuition and student loans, and how will you pay for it? Good. Well, thank you, Benjamin, for asking a question that is on the minds of millions of people your age and some people who are older than you are. And this speaks to them, and I'll get to Benjamin's question in a second, but this speaks to national priorities. How many people in the Hampshire America think we should give a trillion and a half dollars in tax breaks to the richest 1% and large profitable corporations and then tell kids like Benjamin that when they leave school, you're going to have to be paying off a, a debt of fifty dollars or $100,000 for the next 20 or 30 years may not enable you to get married or have kids or buy a home or buy a car. That is pretty crazy. So what Benjamin is really talking about is changing our national priorities and maybe, and I know this is a radical idea, developing policy in Washington that works for working families and not just the wealthiest people in this country. Okay, so you asked me, you know, some of the progress we've made in the last four years. Four years ago when I was in New Hampshire, what I said, and it was seemed to be then a very radical idea, but not such a radical idea today. What I said is for a start, that every young person, not only young person, but every person in this country who wants to pursue a higher education 
should have the right to do that regardless of their income. That K through 12 in terms of public education is not good enough in the modern economy. So issue number one, public colleges and universities tuition free. Number two, we just released last week a tax on Wall Street, a proposal to tax Wall Street speculation. The American people bailed out Wall Street 10 years ago, and it is time for Wall Street, who are making enormous profits today, to start helping the middle class. That tax would pay for making public colleges and universities tuition-free and very, very substantially reducing student debt in this country. So that's the answer. Thank you, Benjamin. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Hi. Uh, many people under 65 do not realize that we do pay for Medicare. So your Medicare for all plan. Like I pay a premium out of my Social Security. I pay a premium for my Part D drug. I also opt to take the supplement, so I pay a third premium. Medicare for all, Medicare for all under your plan, would the, any of my costs be eliminated? Yes, all of it would. All right, let me, thank you very much for asking that question because there's a, I got President Trump attacking me every day on this issue. Let's be clear. We are the only major country on earth that does not guarantee healthcare to all people as a human right. All right, if you go to Canada, you have heart surgery. Do you, how, do you know how much you pay for that hospital bill? Zero, that's what you pay. You go to any doctor you wanna, you go to any hospital you wanna, it's freedom of choice. And yet we end up spending twice as much per person on health care as do the people in Canada. Now, your point is a very interesting point because it's not discussed enough. And that is people say, well, I have health insurance. But, you know, you may have health insurance, but you're still paying a fortune out of your own pocket in terms of premiums, in terms of deductibles, and in terms of co-payments. We eliminate that. And by the way, for people 65 years of age or older, Medicare is a good program. Does it cover dental care? No, it doesn't. Does it cover hearing aids? No, it doesn't. Does it cover eyeglasses? No, it doesn't. We expand it. Now, people say, well, that's all great. How are you going to pay for it? Well, we pay for it starting with the assumption that we're already spending twice as much per person on health care as do the people of any other country. And we pay for it in a progressive manner that will save the vast majority of people money on their health care bills. So to answer your question, Medicare for all will provide comprehensive health care to all people without deductibles and without co-payments. And if you think that's too good to be true, that exists in many other countries around the world. Now, one of the reasons that we have not yet done what Canada and other countries have done is the incredible power of the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance companies. All right, you didn't ask me about the cost of prescription drugs. Why do you think we pay twice as much for prescription drugs as do the people of any other country? Because last year, the top 10 drug companies made $69 billion in profit, and one out of five Americans can't even afford the prescription drugs their doctors prescribe. These are very powerful entities. The insurance companies have unlimited amounts of money as they rip off the American people, and so do the insurance companies. But I think what the American people understand is that healthcare is a human right, that all people should be able to get the prescription drugs they need without being ripped off. And we're gonna take on the drug companies and we're going to pay on, take on the insurance companies. And here on WMUR, you know what you're going to see? A lot of 30-second ads attacking Bernie Sanders as a terrible human being. Because these guys are, they love the status quo. CEOs get huge compensation packages. These guys make billions. But the time is now to finally say healthcare is a human right. Everybody should be able to get the healthcare they need 
without those deductibles and without those compayments. Thank you. Long answer to your question, but it's an important <laughs> one. We've you. got about two minutes left here for television. We have Gail Hatoki with uh, the last question. Senator, it's an honor. One uh, issue that I have not heard candidates address, and that is when all is said and done, will my vote count? I mean, you're afraid of uh, uh, cyber warfare and the manipulation. Yes. Yeah. Look, we live in crazy, you know, we started this discussion by saying that kids are nervous about going to school. And we're ending this discussion here by saying you're nervous about whether or not your vote is going to be counted. And all I can say is, yes, the Russians did interfere in the election in 2016. No, we have not been as vigorous as we should. We've made some progress. But the basic, we have got to do more in terms of cybersecurity. And I'll tell you what else I think we should be doing. I think you should be here in New Hampshire and in Vermont, we do it in my city, I think you should be uh, voting with paper ballots that can be tracked, okay, that we have a record of how you in fact voted. I do get a little bit nervous when everything is done by computers and may not be able to, and those computers could be hacked. Uh, so thank you for that important question. And, and you know, what we are struggling for is a democracy where your vote actually counts and we've got a lot of work to do uh, on that. Okay, thank you, Gail. Really quick here, 20 seconds or so. Uh, what were you going to do against Russia? Are you going to sanctions more? Absolutely. Look, it, when, if Russia is attacking American democracy, and not just American democracy, they're doing this all over the world, that is an act of warfare. Uh, and instead of you know, uh, seeing uh, Putin as uh, Trump's best friend, we have got to tell them that that is unacceptable and there will be very severe repercussions. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. The candidate being Senator Bernie Sanders, the reigning champion of the New Hampshire primary here, joining us and our New Hampshire voters. And we're going to jump right in to their questions with Brenda Bouchard. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sanders. My husband passed recently from younger onset Alzheimer's disease after living with it for 12 and a half years. My mother has Alzheimer's and my sister was diagnosed last summer. By 2050, it's anticipated that 14 million Americans will have Alzheimer's or a related dementia at a projected cost of $1.1 trillion in today's dollars. So what will you do to deal with this national public health crisis that is impacting all of us? Well, I'm sorry for your loss. And the question that you're asking, I think, is a question that millions of families are asking. We have a crisis in healthcare in general, and we have a particular crisis in Alzheimer's. People are living longer, and more people are uh, suffering from Alzheimer's. So I think for a start, what we have to do is understand that covering all illness uh, is a, something that has to be done by the United States government. That's why I believe in a Medicare for All system. And that would cover, obviously, Alzheimer's. The second thing we have to do, and I know the Alzheimer's organizations are hard at work on this, and that is we need a lot more research into the causation of Alzheimer's. I think some success, some research has proven to be fruitful, but we need a lot more. So number one, we cover all people. Uh, we cover nursing home care. Uh, and second of all, uh, we do a lot more research uh, into understanding why this is such a prevalent problem. Quick follow though, Senator. How does research and development work in a single-payer system? Some people would argue that the incentives are there for American innovation I this time I, I around. Would, I would argue just the opposite. What are the incentives right now in terms of the drug companies? It's to make money. 
And I think what we have got to do is tell the drug companies that, among other things, Alzheimer's is a major issue, and we want research to be done uh, on that. If you check out where many of the drug companies are investing right now, it's often Me Too drugs, drugs that are just a little bit different than the current drugs because they can make money on that. Uh, but I think Alzheimer's is one clear example, obviously cancer, diabetes, these are all terribly serious health problems. And we need to invest in the research and development to help us come up with answers to these terrible illnesses. Social media question coming in from Bill Valancourt. Climate change is a major threat to the U.S. How do you plan on working around fossil fuel lobbyists who will do everything in their power to stop anything like the Green New Deal? That's a great question. And it's not just, you're not going to work around the fossil fuel industry. You work through the fossil fuel industry. In other words, this is, this is where we are as a nation. The insurance companies don't want Medicare for all because they're making a whole lot of money. Wall Street wants to charge you 25% interest rates on your credit cards because they're making a whole lot of money. Now, the fossil fuel industry is a case unto themselves. This is an industry that lies every single day. The scientific community no longer debates whether fossil fuels are the cause of climate change. That debate is over. And what the scientists tell us is that we have all of 12 years to transform the global energy system if we're going to prevent irreparable damage to this planet. I got four kids, three of whom live in New Hampshire, and I have seven grandchildren. Okay? And I believe we have got to do everything that we can to make sure that this planet is healthy and habitable for future generations. So what do we have to do? Essentially, we need policies, which I have introduced and been part of, which says that we have got to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. We know what we have to do. We know that we can grow significantly wind power, solar power, hydro, and other forms of uh, sustainable energy. But this is no longer a debate. This is an existential threat to the planet. And by the way, when we transform our energy system away from fossil fuel, we're going to create millions and millions of jobs. I know in Vermont, I work very hard with success to bring energy efficiency money into older homes where people saw their fuel bills go down by 50%. We reduced carbon emissions and we created jobs in the process. That's what we should be doing all over this country. So let me be very clear. I believe that climate change is real. I believe it is man-made. I believe it is a horrific threat to the entire planet. And as President of the United States, I would be honored to not only transform the energy system in this country, but help lead the world to bring countries together to say, maybe we shouldn't spend a trillion and a half dollars every year on weapons of destruction to kill each other, but maybe we should work together to save the planet for future generations. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, good evening. Thank you for being here. Since the advent of the war on terror, our police forces have become increasingly militarized. Do you support the arming of local police with military-grade weapons? If not, how would you propose our local police engage their good. communities? Good, very good. And, and I speak, as, as some of you know, I was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, for eight years. And I was, a, if I must say so, a pretty good mayor. 
And one of the things that we did is try to engage the police uh, in terms of what is called community policing, in the sense of making people see the police as part of the community, where they knew who the police officer was, where the police officer was talking to the community, talking to the kids, rather than as exists now in some communities as an invading army with large-scale military weaponry. So I think we need, by the way, reforms of police department to integrate them socially into the communities. But we also need, more broadly speaking, fundamental reform of a broken criminal justice system. All right, let me extrapolate from your question and tell you that we have more people in jail today than any other country on earth, almost two million people. And in my view, rather than spending $80 billion a year locking up fellow Americans, I think we should be investing in our young people. If you get them jobs, if you make sure that they have the education, there is much less likelihood that they will become uh, I I I involved in crime. We don't need to build more jails and incarceration. We need to invest in education and jobs uh, for our kids. And that's something that I would also be working very hard on. Thank you. Thank you. Senator, a quick follow there. The federal prison population is a target of a lot of policy reform uh, efforts. Uh, some people want to get 50% of those individuals out of prison, but not all of the 50% represent the drug crimes that so many people talk about. So do you agree with the 50% goal? No, and I, do you think that there are people, or what kinds of inmates should be released beyond the drug population? Look, our criminal justice system is fundamentally broken. Uh, we have people who should not be in jail, uh, who should be uh, released. We have a very high rate of recidivism, which means that when people leave jail, they don't have the education, they don't have the jobs, they don't have the housing, and they fall back into their, the environment that got them into jail in the first place. We now have 400,000 people in jail. You know why they're in jail? Today. Because they're poor and they cannot afford cash bail. We have a war on drugs, which has been a disaster in this country, and I'm i got to tell you, I support and have supported the legalization of marijuana or the decriminalization of marijuana. Uh, but to answer your question, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. But I think right now uh, we can do a lot better in significant reducing uh, the prison population in this country. But I don't know that there's a magical number at this point. Obviously, you don't want dangerous people to be out. But I think there are a lot of people who could be released uh, who are not dangerous. Next question comes from Ethan Carbasi. Thank you for being here, Senator. The current administration seems to take an active approach against science and science-based thought. What are your ideas to get the nation to start looking at policy with a science-focused lens? So should I give you the radical answer that I, here it is, Go I believe it. in science. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I don't want to spend my whole life talking about Trump. Uh, but among other things, the idea that time after time, I think most notably with regard to climate change, uh, he uh, is uh, rejecting what the scientific community is telling us, uh, as well as many other areas dealing with the environment and other areas. I just don't know how you run a government or a business or anything else when you're not listening to the people who know what the subject is about, when you're not absorbing the data that you have to be looking at. And sadly, we have a president who is not doing that. So obviously, I will give you, you know, the, the answer that you would expect from any candidate for president of the United States, that you bring the most knowledgeable people on every issue together, whether it's climate change, whether it's the economy, whether it's anything else, 
whether it's healthcare. We bring the most knowledgeable people together. We go out, we get the ideas of the American people, and we develop policies from that. We don't develop policies just because they make the heads of some large corporation uh, a little bit richer. Thank you. Next question comes from Keith Radisich. Keith. Senator Sanders, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I've been on the for-profit side of health care for about 30 years now. And the question that I have is stemming more from in a single-payer environment, how do you ensure that the most qualified candidates still want to pursue a career in medicine if entrepreneurship is taken away? Well, that's a fair question, Keith, but let me uh, give you the other side of that coin. And, and you may know this, and, and all of you may know this. Uh, we got a lot of doctors out there, especially primary care physicians, who are becoming very demoralized, very burned out, because they went to medical school because they wanted to help people, uh, make people well. And yet, every time they try to do a therapy or prescribe a drug, uh, you got the insurance companies telling them what they can or cannot do. And you have a lot of demoralization among uh, doctors and burnout. Uh, so I think what you want, the best that you can do, uh, I think, in, in healthcare, is first of all, get the necessary number of doctors that we need. We don't have enough right now. And second of all, get them into the areas where we need them the most. There are rural counties in this country, all over this country, where we have no doctors, all right? And we can, we can do that. Uh, but I think allow, giving doctors the education they need, by the way, and not saddling them with huge debts. You're aware that people leave medical school, three, $400,000 of debt, dental school, the same business. So what we want is young, motivated doctors, well-trained, whose heart is not to make a whole lot of money. I mean, they deserve good money, but to basically provide the quality health care that the American people deserve. Thank you, sir. Quick follow there, Senator. What happens in the transition to Medicare for all to people who work in the private insurance industry? We have, we put into our legislation a very substantial sum of money uh, for retraining. But, you know, to be honest with you, uh, right now, uh, the crisis, as I've just mentioned, that in many parts of this country, in rural America especially, we don't have enough doctors and we don't have enough nurses and we don't have enough nurse practitioners. What we want is to bring people into healthcare who will not just be sending out bills and badgering you every other day about the fact that you owe a hospital bill. We want people to as great a degree as possible who will actually be working and improving the lives of people who are ill. So right now, we are wasting about $500 billion a year on administration, all right? Not providing health care. And that's one of the reasons why Medicare for All is a much more cost-effective approach. But to answer your question, will there be a transition? It's the same issue. The answer is yes. It's the same issue as climate change. Am I an enemy of coal miners? Not at all. Not at all. And we have to make sure that when people see their jobs disappear, that we protect those people with investments in their community, with extended unemployment benefits, extended health care benefits. But at the end of the day, we want to invest in health care, not in bureaucracy, not in administration, not in people pushing paper. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Senator Sanders, I'm going to read an excerpt from a publicly traded company's quarterly report, or 10Q. I'll reveal who that company is and then follow that with a question. So here we go. For the nine months ended March 31st in 2019, revenues increased from a 759.4 million from 678.9 million the prior year. It's quite a jump. Operating income increased to 42 million 
from 15 million the prior year as compared to um, so this publicly traded company's name is k12.com I might add and public funds account for um, some of the revenue for that for-profit education company now the for-profit industry uh, the for-profit education industry has de definitely done very well under secretary the secretary DeVos the secretary of education and as a member of Manchester's school board please describe a Sanders administration public education funding and how that would affect our local policies well you can find it thank you for hanging in there <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that question it's an important question uh, right now, uh, we have for-profit, as you indicated, uh, charter schools, uh, where you know, Wall Street folks and uh, others are making a whole lot of money. We just introduced a program a couple of weeks ago which eliminates for-profit charter schools in this country. I think we should be investing heavily uh, in public education. I think where communities want to do experimental work with uh, locally controlled uh, charter schools, that's fine, uh, under public funding. Uh, but I don't think that public education, uh, that taxpayers' money should be going uh, to make uh, CEOs in private corporations much richer. Uh, and let me just also say that in terms of public education, we got a whole lot of problems uh, in this country. And one of the things we, which breaks my heart, because I went to a public school in New York City, we have got to redefine what education means in this country. And we have got to say that there is almost nothing more important than our kids getting a quality education, which means that we have got to attract the best and the brightest young people to get into teaching because there are very few professions out there that are more important than educating the next generation. But you know that all over this country you're seeing young people say, teaching, don't be ridiculous. Why do I want to work as a teacher, take money out of my own pocket to buy school supplies, and then have to drive an Uber car to make the income that I need for my family? So we have to raise salaries for teachers, attract the best to become into the teaching profession, among many other changes that we need. But bottom line is, we are falling behind many, many other countries in terms of the kind of uh, scores that our kids are getting in math, science, reading, etc. We This is the wealthiest country in the history of the world. We can and must do better. Thank you. Thank you. Next question comes from Lauren Selig. Hello, Senator. Thank you. I want to go back um, to an issue you briefly touched upon earlier, which has to do with the judiciary. As you're aware, the current Senate Majority Leader has blocked the appointment of judges for many years, and then recently has been pushing forward extremist judges at all levels. I'd like to know what you'll do to protect the judiciary. Well, for a start, uh, you're right. Uh, uh, when Obama, as you know, nominated a justice, a moderate guy, uh, Merrick Garland, uh, in an ugly way, I think, uh, what Mitch McConnell, the leader, the Republican leader of the Senate did is block a vote on that. And that was really not acceptable. Uh, and now, as you indicate quite correctly, when I go back to Washington, you know what I'm doing most of the time? I'm just voting for extreme right-wing judges, against right-wing judges, but he's bringing them up. And that's what the Republicans are trying to do. So 
Uh, what I will tell you, that is, President of the United States first thought, I will, not be, I will be appointing judges who respect and understand the Constitution, who understand the judges have got to take into consideration the needs of working people in the environment and not just corporate profits. And also, given the attacks that we have seen in the last few months on a woman's right to control her own body, let me, you know, I've been asked whether that's a litmus, this Roe v. Wade is a litmus, as it is. Given this moment in history, I will not appoint any, uh, I will not nominate uh, anybody to the Supreme Court who is not 100% in support of protecting Roe v. Wade. Thank you. Quick follow on that, Senator. Is there anything you could do as president to protect abortion? Uh, we know that it's yeah, obviously there, often a state issue where Congress could act. There but. is. Uh, there is absolutely a lot that can be done. Uh, I think we need national, you know, right now uh, it's a state by state decision, but I think national legislation to support what Roe v. Wade, said, Roe v. Wade says, and that is that a woman has the constitutional right to control her own body. This really is an outrage, and I think we need federal legislation uh, to do just that. I think we need judges who will support that, uh, and we need states to go forward, uh, as Vermont, I think, is in the process of doing, to make sure that that right remains absolutely firm. Next question comes from George Matthews. Thanks for being here. I believe the current occupant of the White House has decimated our international standing as an ally. Please tell me how you would approach foreign policy and the security of our great nation. Well, thank you. I, I agree with your basic premise there. Uh, it is, again, I mean, when you talk about Trump, we always use the word unbelievable until the next day comes and it's, then it's more unbelievable. But who would be thinking that you would have a president who palsy up with Kim Jong-un, who is a Terrible, terrible, terrible dictator. Do we want a war with North Korea? Of course not. We want to work with them? Yes. But you don't praise Kim Jong-un. You don't have as your bosom buddy Vladimir Putin. You don't bring the leader of Hungary, who is an anti-Semite and an authoritarian, into the White House and talk about what a nice guy he is. And then at the same time, you attack Canada and Germany and the United Kingdom, our long-term allies. So I think what we have got to do is we need a president who believes, which Trump does not, in democracy, in human rights, who is reaching around the world to bring countries together, who does not support the brutal dictatorship in Saudi Arabia, by the way, you know, which treats women as third-class citizens. So you need a president who tells the world that democracy is the future, not authoritarianism, that condemns countries who are attacking human rights, who strengthens the bond that we've had with our long-term allies, that works with our adversaries, tries to bring peace to this world, but does not praise dictators and anti-democratic tyrants. Thank you. Quick follow on that foreign policy, Senator Sanders. Obviously, the commander-in-chief has uh, the most powerful weapons at his or her disposal, nuclear weapons. Do you feel you would be capable uh, of using nuclear weapons in defense of the country? Oh, yeah, any time. I mean, was I capable of blowing no, I mean, up the it's world? A, it's a great moral question. No, it's not a great one. It's a great immoral question. I mean, the answer is not whether I'd be capable of blowing up the entire world. What kind of question is that? I would hope no president is ever in that position. The real question should be is how the hell we get rid of these nuclear weapons that are threatening the entire planet. And I would be aggressive in doing that. All right, right now, uh, we have a president who wants to spend more and more on uh, the military, 
uh, and more money on nuclear weapons. Uh, I want to see us not uh, abrogate treaties with Iran or any place else uh, which have controlled the growth of nuclear weapons. I want to see us be aggressive in bringing the world together again to figure out how we can substantially not only reduce military spending worldwide, but how we can reduce the ongoing and long-term threat of nuclear weapons. So on, let me just say why we're on that subject. I, I've been criticized recently by some of the mainstream media for my views uh, on foreign policy. Uh, but as I've said recently, I, I'm not going to apologize for that, and the people in New Hampshire will have to judge. I was a leader in the effort to stop the war in Iraq. I did not believe Dick Cheney, and I did not believe John Bolton, and I did not believe President Bush that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And I, if you go to the YouTube, you'll see the speeches that I gave. So I'm not going to apologize for that. More recently, as you know, I led the effort in the United States Senate to pass a resolution to get the U.S. out of the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen. People know what's going on in Yemen? It is the worst humanitarian disaster in, on Earth. UN tells us 200,000 people will be dead by the end of this year, women and children. And if we don't get a handle on that war and stop that war, we're talking about millions of people dying of a famine. This is being led by the dictatorship in Saudi Arabia. You think America should be part of that? I don't. And right now, you've got a president who appears, although he changes his views every day, but John Bolton, at least, his national security advisor, wants a war with Iran. Now, how crazy is that? Have we not learned anything from what the war in Iraq was about and all of the destabilization and loss of life we experienced there? So I'm going to do everything I can to stop that war in Iran. So I don't apologize for trying to do everything humanly possible to stop wars and destruction and to try to reach diplomatic solutions. Now, I know it's good politics for politicians probably who have been in this room to say, hey, I'm going to be tough on this one. And I'm going to be tough on them. I'm going to blow them off. Fine. But their kids are not the kids who are going off to war and who are dying. All right. Not their kids. So yes, you know, I'm not a pacifist. Sometimes war is, unfortunately, what has to be done. But you are looking at somebody who will do everything that he can to make sure that our kids are not dying in the Middle East. I was the former chairman of the Veterans Committee. I talked to too many families who lost loved ones in wars that we should not have been fighting in. To the original question, though, if Kim Jong-un launches a nuclear missile at the uh, United States, you are not responding in kind. No, I didn't say that. Let's do I, everything. Well, just that to we, clarify. Look, let's do everything that we can to prevent that. And by the way, I have criticized. No one has been more critical, critical of Donald Trump than I have been on so many issues, including many we've discussed this evening. But I have not been critical of him for sitting down with Kim Jong-un. You do sit down with your adversaries even when they're terrible dictators. So I've not been critical of them, and I will do that as well. We need to figure out some resolution. But let's not talk about whether or not I have the courage to blow up the entire world. Uh, we got to do a little bit better than that. We got to prevent that day from coming. Next question comes from Richard Bruno. Hello, Senator. Thank, Thank you for Richard. taking my question. My question is concerning the dark money in politics Good. that influences many of the decisions that are made in our government. How would you handle getting some of that dark money out of, out of Congress. Look, you often hear me talking about the massive level of income and wealth inequality that we have in America. We've got three families that own more wealth than the bottom half of America, and 50% of all new income goes to the top 1%. But that's just not a, a, an economic issue. It translates, as Richard says, into politics. 
What do you think the Koch brothers and other billionaires do with their money? What they do is say, hey, you know, we're worth 50 or 60 billion dollars. That's not enough. We don't want to pay any taxes at all. And you got a situation now where, listen to this, Amazon, owned by the wealthiest guy in the country, Jeff Bezos, made $11 billion in profits last year. How much do they pay in taxes? Anybody here know? Zero. 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 Pay less in taxes than you do. Now, how does that happen? It happens because these people have enormous power. They elect candidates who fight to give tax breaks to the billionaires and then to cut programs for working people, whether it's education or health care or whatever. So to answer your question, what do we have to do? For a start, we have got to overturn this disastrous Citizens United Supreme Court decision, which allows billionaires to buy elections. It is a corrupt system. That's all. You get one vote, and you get one vote. The Koch brothers should not be able to spend $400 million to elect candidates who will give tax breaks to billionaires, who will continue the path uh, on, on climate change, and not addressing climate change that we're in right now. So that's number one. You've got to overturn Citizens United. The second thing that we have to do uh, is to end voter suppression. We have to make it easier for people to participate in the political process, uh, not harder. Uh, then the third thing we have to do is move to public funding of elections. You want to run for office and you're not wealthy, you should be able to run for public office and not be dependent on big money contributions. And I'm very proud that I think my campaign in 2016 and right now has revolutionized the way politics takes place in America. It used to be the politics was sitting down in the living room with some wealthy person collecting a whole lot of money and then hiring a consultant, putting ads on TV. Well, we ran last time, we raised an average contribution of 27 bucks. I didn't sit in wealthy people's living rooms. I was out talking to the American people. And you know what? A lot of candidates now understand that that is the right way to go. So I think we're making some progress, but obviously we have a long uh, path in front of us. Thank you. A couple minutes left here. We'll let you wrap up on a question we've asked of a few of these uh, candidates who've come our way. Can you tell us about an instance in which you faced adversity in your life that made you a better leader? Yeah, I'll tell you about one. I grew up in a family that didn't have any money. How's that for adversity? All right. And that's something I've never forgotten. Yeah, I, I'm not like Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump's parents gave him $200,000 a year uh, in allowance when he was a kid. Well, my family gave me 25 cents a week. And I saw uh, struggle within my own family. Uh, my mother and father, wonderful people. They did their best. Uh, but we lived in a rent-controlled apartment. And every time uh, there was a purchase of any significance, a pair of drapes, you know, a new table, that was fighting in the house. My mother's dream in life uh, was to get out of that rent-controlled apartment and finally own her own home. She died young. She never retrieved that dream. That dream. So knowing what it is like to live paycheck to paycheck, knowing what it is like to worry or not whether you're going to pay for the light bill or put gas in the car, that's something that I do know. I know that in my guts. That's not an intellectual thing. That is something which I know and I feel. And that's what's going on all over this country. I know what it's like for families to live under the stress and fear. My God, what happens if dad gets sick and has to go to the hospital? Are we going to go bankrupt because we can't afford to pay that $100,000 bill? Or what happens when we're saving up to send our kid to college, but the car broke down and we're not going to be able to do that? We need a new car. So here's the story, bottom line. Then this is what motivates me is that in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, half of our people 
should not be living paycheck to paycheck. In New Hampshire and in Vermont, thousands of people should not have to work two or three jobs while three families own more wealth than the bottom half of America. Now, I know that this is not talked about on television very much, and there are reasons for that. Okay? But at the end of the day, we can and must do what other countries are often doing. Healthcare is a human right. Making sure that kids can go to college without going deeply into debt is not a radical idea. Listening to the scientists and addressing the crisis of climate change and creating millions of jobs is not something that we should be debating. It's what we should be doing. Equal pay for equal work for women is not also an extreme idea. So I am. What, what my life has been about is growing up in a working class family. I have not forgotten where I have come from. And as president of the United States, that background, my life experience, is something that will shape my policies. Senator Sanders, thank you for joining us for Conversation with a Candidate. We thank appreciate you. your time. Thank you to our studio audience and New Hampshire voters and your questions. Thanks to you for watching. Be sure to join us next week for Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. But again, thank you so much for watching and thank you to Senator Sanders. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.